Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available on Amazon or your favorite book retailer. The other day, a colleague said to me, Jen, you're always so happy, even when work gets hectic. What's your secret? Well, listeners, I can tell you, my secret is practice. I intentionally cultivate happiness daily with small behaviors because happiness doesn't just magically happen. It's a habit that anyone can learn. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Eric Karpinski. He's been on the cutting edge of bringing positive psychology tools to workplaces for nearly 10 years. Eric is a key member of Sean Aker's Good Think team. He's also author of the book, Put Happiness to Work, Seven Strategies to Elevate Engagement for Optimal Performance. So, Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jen. It's, it's a delight to be here. I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of years, and this is going to be uh, fun to actually be on it. Awesome. I agree. I get to pepper you with questions this time instead of you listening. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so let's get started. Tell us your story. How did you become inspired to focus on positive psychology and, in particular, happiness in the workplace? Yeah. So, you know, personally, I always wanted to be happy. And I, I think society laid out a pretty clear path, um, as wrongheaded as it, <laughs> as it was. But it was, Eric, if you work hard, you become successful, then you'll have plenty of money and be able to do things that, that will make you happy. Right. So it was that work hard, become successful. Once you're successful, then you'll be happy. Mm. Fast forward 20 years, and I. I did all the things I was supposed to, right? I really said, oh, that's the, that's the way, that's my way forward. That's my way to success and happiness. And, and with a lot of hard work and a lot of luck, I got a biochemistry degree from Brown and I got an MBA from the Wharton School and, and was able to, to land really sought after jobs um, that were very competitive and very interesting and powerful and, you know, quote unquote, ways. I, I made lots of money and I got married and I moved to San Diego, had a couple kids I was more successful than I had ever expected to be as a kid. And I was absolutely miserable. Mm. That constant drive for success, right? That next promotion, that next raise. Oh, once I get promoted to partner, then I'll be, then I'll be happy. Once I get that next raise, then, then I'll be happy. And the problem was, <laughs> as you know, it, it's really easy to get this caught in this trap of success, you know, leads to you being in another group and you have to work even harder to get to keep that level of success. And that constant drive led to anxiety, led to insomnia. That insomnia definitely led to depression. And while I was dr- while this whole idea was to try to become happy, now I'm seeing a therapist and on antidepressant drugs. I popped my head up off this sort of hedonic treadmill of what's next, what's next. And I realized I could not succeed my way to happiness. And of course, I was trained as a scientist. So I said, well, what does science know about happiness? And this is in 2008. So, so positive psychology is just sort of six, seven years old. Um, and 
I really found, so I found the positive psychology world, the, the organizational psych world, the, the neuroscience world, and there was, found a treasure trove of real peer-reviewed research about not only how to be happier, because that feels good, but also the benefits of being happier, the benefits for our success, that if we find ways today to, to turn our mind positive more often, it actually helps us be more successful at work and in life. Um, <clears throat> and so after sort of really playing with this myself, learning and tapping into my strengths and my core values, really creating the social support network that I knew was important, learning to work with my stress and with my negative emotions. Two years of sort of doing that self-work, I realized there's so much great stuff here. I, I want to help others find this, find this research, apply it. And so I spent the last 10 years working with organizations, helping them apply this research. Because some of it you can kind of take somewhat directly, right? You can just sort of like, oh, they did a study like this. Let's just do that. Others of the research needs to be tweaked in the real world and decide, you know, figure out how to, to, to best implement <clears throat> some of these ideas and some of this research. So after 10 years, I decided to write a book because there's a lot of great learning in there of how to really apply the research. And so that um, McGraw-Hill just published that book in March uh, here of 2021. It's called Put Happiness to Work. And it really codifies all of the learning and brings the research down to a practical way. How do we use it at work? And it's, you know, it comes down to seven strategies that are about how do we bring happiness to work? Yes. But which parts of happiness, which types of happiness that are also really strongly tied to work engagement? And these are the positive emotions. I call activated positive emotions. Things like when we're feeling inspired and enthusiastic. Because when we're feeling engaged, we're feeling proud. And we feel like we belong, that we're part of a team. Um, and that our life is, and that our work is, is meaningful. And that it, that, it's, that it matters. So the idea is, behind this book is, look, we are, there's all these strategies that we can help bring people happier, and bring them more engagement so that you can actually line up the incentives of everybody. Because everybody, nobody, many people don't care about their engagement, but they care a lot about their happiness. And leaders care a lot about our engagement because it ties so much to productivity and um, profitability and, and better customer outcomes. So, so anyway, that's, that's my career in a nutshell, because now we're at this place where the book is published, and there's so many of us that are just in these late stages of the pandemic languishing. Yeah. And thank you to Adam Grant for bringing that to the, exactly. <laughs> to the vernacular the article, for right? us, right? <laughs> <laughs> I read that article and I was like, yes, I feel seen. I feel heard. I feel totally validated. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's and, it, and so many of us are feeling that. And, and what I loved about that is he showed us, he gave us the word and, yeah. and also green lighted the fact that it's okay that we're all feeling this right now. We don't need to be flourishing. There's so many things that we normally have that, that reinforce us that just aren't there right now. Yeah. And I mean, that feeds in directly to where I want to go because I think that happiness is something that perhaps is is misunderstood, right? This This mm. kind of constant striving for happiness, but, you know, never really feeling like we get there or, you know, do we need to like always be happy and what happens when we're not happy? And so yeah. can we talk about, I guess, number one, like what is the 
actual definition of happiness? <laughs> and then yes. what is the science behind? Like, let's demystify it for people. Cause I feel like, you know, there's this idea of like, oh, you, ha- you have to always be happy. And, and, you know, like this constant striving for happiness, which I've heard over and Terrible over. Idea. I'm sure you, you have, right? That like this constant striving for happiness actually makes you more unhappy than if you weren't striving for happiness at all. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So good. Let me, let me, let me hit this one at a time. Happiness, the way that I talk about happiness and the way the research really captures it is there's, it's all positive emotions collectively. Mm-hmm. So like all of those things that we feel, that, that contentment and that satisfaction, that, that enthusiasm, that excitement, that pride, that, you know, that sense of, of meaning, that sense of fami- fulfillment, any, anything that you consider a positive emotion, I consider that under the umbrella of happiness. So it's a much broader thing and it doesn't have to be this extroverted, high five giving type of happiness. Like that counts and that's one, one aspect of it, this high energy. But just if someone who's just, hey, feels good and they're expressing it in, in a calm way, that, that counts too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's not, I, I, I do, I, I appreciate that question because we do want to have that broad umbrella definition. And then really important, positive emotions are fleeting, right? Yeah. We, we, can't, we, can't cr- we can't force them. We can create space for them. And we can plant seeds and we can do little things in our lives. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of these practical things that we can, little habits that we can do in our lives, take a couple minutes a day, little things we can do in a meeting or when we're interacting with others that we can't force anybody, but we can plant seeds and create space. And when we do, oftentimes happiness arises, but it's not about being happy all the time. If we, can ha- if we can have three or four more t- moments in a day where we feel a nice, energetic, positive emotion, that's, that's all we need to get all the, to tap in all the benefits. And, and in fact, as you said, if you have these expectations of happy all the time, that is a, is a terrible place to go. In fact, that was, that was my, pro- my problem when I first learned about this. I was like, this is all so cool. I am gonna, not going to have to be angry or sad or frustrated again. I'll just Anytime I want to, I'll just go to the tools. And this is in the same time that I was transitioning to be speaking about happiness, but I was completely ignoring um, all of the research we know about negative emotions and that we actually have to experience many of our negative emotions. When we're really disappointed that something didn't happen, when we're really sad that we can't go out with our friends because of the pandemic, it's okay to open. We need to open up to those negative emotions. We need to let them in and feel them. If we just cover it over, then that, you know, I know you've had Susan David on that. That just- They come back with a vengeance. (laughs) They come back back in places you never expected, right? And they completely sideswipe. They're like, no, we're going to be expressed one way or another. So it's important to be able to differentiate those negative emotions that are what I call necessary negative emotions and those that are gratuitous and stuff that we're just creating for ourselves. And, and so I've got a whole chapter in the book about managing negative emotions and how to, how to differentiate those so that you can do it from a healthy perspective. Well, and that's where I was going to go. I mean, let, let's talk about that, right? Because I think, you know, as, as so many of us reflect on the past year, but, you know, depending on where you are in the world, you know, this, this pandemic is still raging, right? We're not, we're not done. Um, And so there have been a a lot of negative emotions. Uh, How do we, what are the strategies for dealing with that? And then kind of moving to, you know, moving out of them or, you know, moving to a different place, whether it is, you know, moving into, Mm -hmm positive emotions. I, I struggle with calling emotions negative and positive. They're just emotions. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> right? Um, yeah. But but you know what I'm saying, right? Like how do we how do we honor our negative emotions, but then take steps to move out of that place so we don't get stuck there? Yeah, and I think the biggest thing is to just we're not good at opening up to the negative stuff, right? Mm-hmm. We want to push it away. We want to go to our video games. We want to anything. And when we're feeling, ugh, we're just like, nah, distraction. Just, let's go. Let's distract. <laughs> let's pull ourselves away. Let's, let's go do a happy thing. Right. And, and, and that's where we run into the problems is when we don't, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm actually really feeling sad right now. I, I really want to go out with my friends and have a beer or I'm driving by and I'm seeing other people like at a bar that they're not supposed to be. And I'm like, I want that. Okay, let that in. Just be like, or what? Is, what does this feel like? And then you can do some of this. The mindfulness tools are really useful. Like, so where do I feel this negative emotion? And what, so you can be with it without using your brain to multiply it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of the gratuitous stuff. It's like, oh, I'm never going to get to go ahead. And how come they get to do it? And that's just multiplying your negativity. I'm really good so, at that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're, we're 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 all good practiced at. at you know, making things. I take worse it all the way down the stream until the stream doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> right, T- total catastrophization. Right, like, oh my god, and this is going to mean I'm never going to have any friends. And this, you know, and it's it's easy for our brains to do that, right? We we have this negativity bias that takes us into that that brings up the negative stuff and helps us land it <laughs> more often than than we want. And 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 we can get good at recognizing that, right? Okay, no, what's sad here is that I can't go out and have a beer with my friends. Let me, let me acknowledge that. Let me let that in. Yes, it sucks. Um, and then, okay, well, here I am though, but what's good in my life, right? And then doing, doing a, giving yourself one of the practices, uh, a gratitude practice, a, you know, any of the things that are well proven to do it. All right, well, let me create some space for what's good too, yeah. right? And, and not forcing it, but after you experience the negative stuff, okay, now I'm, I'm back to neutral or I, my brain wants to go cycle in all these gratuitous stuff. Let's, let's actually stop away from that and let's find what's actually good, right? Some of us get to spend more time with our families. Some of us, there's benefits that come out of, out of this pandemic too. And if we can spend a little time on that, great. If, if it doesn't come up, that's okay too, right? We're, try, we're trying to create space for positive things, but we can't have the expectations can't force of those it. positive emotions. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so you in particular kind of focus on, or your book focuses on happiness at work or happiness in the workplace, which is such a relevant and interesting topic because I, mm-hmm. I feel like for so long, you know, we didn't really, I mean, like happiness wasn't, didn't have a place at work, right? It was like happiness wasn't something organizations strive for. It wasn't the organization's job to, you know, have happy employees. And if, and if employees were happy, did that mean that they weren't doing a good job? Cause maybe they were having too much fun at work. <laughs> and do we really want people to have fun at work? Right. And so thank God we moved on from that. Yeah. I mean, we have, right. But conversations over the years that both of us have probably been involved in, um, you know, is, do we really want happy employees? Obviously the, the, the answer is overwhelmingly yes, but, but talk to me about, happiness and you mentioned happiness and engagement talk to me about how they're linked how they drive performance and why happiness does matter in the workplace yeah circling into engagement i think is really important because so many so many leaders understand they want they want their people to be engaged right they want because because gallup's done so so much great research about about how important engagement is hundreds of thousands of work groups you know that <clears throat> When people are engaged, they are, they absolutely are tied to 
higher levels of productivity and profitability and customer service and all the all the great things. So when you look when you look at engagement though, engagement really is an expression of a lot of activated positive emotions. Mm. And so because the problem is most leaders talk about, hey, we want you to be engaged because we we want the benefits for the organization, which is the profitability and the pr- productivity. Or they're like, but I know what engaged employees look like. They look like they're committed and they're loyal and they're willing to put in the extra mile and discretion. Their heads down working all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Which is which is or at least that's what they they want to see the benefits of that, right? right. But of course as as any individual contributor or even, you know, earlier you know, more junior manager hears that from the leaders and they're like, You just want me to work harder. Like yeah. all you're saying is you want me to work harder and be more committed. I'm doing what I can right now. And so there's not any motivation in the way that we talk about engagement as leaders. Um, and so let's switch that. Let's change how we think about engagement because so much of engagement is those positive emotions that we're feeling. Engaged people, you know, as we talked about, like they feel proud, they feel motivated, they feel like they belong. Those are things that people want to feel. So let's stop talking about engagement as this great thing for the organization and start talking about how it's great for the organization, yes, and it's also great for us because when we're feeling engaged, we are full of energizing positive emotions. And let's focus not on getting you, you know, getting you happy in a generic way. Because, you know, if you look at some of the big organizations, you know, three free meals a day and massage therapists coming in and nap pods and pool tables, that stuff's great for recruiting. And it's great to help people feel satisfied and content. But those satisfied and content kind of emotions are ones, they're rest and digest kind of positive emotions. They don't push you forward. Mm. Whereas those ones that we're talking about, when we can help people feel like they matter, when we can help people feel inspired by what we're trying to do, if we can tap into their personal ways they find meaning in their work, now we're talking because they're going to feel good. So they're going to be motivated to keep doing these things. And, and, when we're, um, and that'll help us then be more engaged, help us all move towards towards the goals. And now everybody wins, right? Everyone's aligned because we all want to feel good. And as an organization, we want to achieve the things that are in front of us. So let's find that way where, th- where we're aligned, which is engagement through activated positive emotions. So, so I, I love what you're saying. I want to, I want to dig into especially the, 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 the notion of, you know, positive emotions and, purpose and meaning in work. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So for for people that might be listening that are struggling to find purpose and meaning in their work, w- what advice do you have for them? Yeah, two two real paths to meaning at work that I that I live by and really try to <clears throat> to help every, other people find. The first one I call purpose meaning, and that's where when our lives have purpose beyond our self-interest, when we're contributing to something bigger than ourselves, that's big. And so we've got, a lot of us have it by default, right? People living in, working in the in a helping profession, in education or in healthcare. So th- those are easy to tap. Oh, who am I helping? Well, this kid that I was teaching today and this patient that, that actually after COVID was able to, to walk out and be taken care of. The problem is most of the most people in those spaces don't actually remind themselves about why they're there, mm. right? You can live in the you can be in the best helping profession there is, but if you don't remind yourself, that's why you're doing the work. That's why you're putting up with the stress. Is these benefits and these to these 
students or these patients or whatever it is. So <clears throat> I think fr- within a helping profession, we need to make sure we remind ourselves, within any profession, we need to remind ourselves of who it is we're helping and that that's why we're doing the hard work we're doing, right? Because once we infuse our work with that meaning, now it's it gives us that engagement. It gives us that that positive thing. If we're just like, oh, here's the next 20 things I need to do, and we don't tie it to the benefit, to, to the beneficent, the people who are benefiting, then we're toast. Um, we're just not gonna we're just not gonna get the benefit. Right. And it's and I think all professions, you know, when we go to it, there's someone who's helped. Maybe it's the end user of a product or a service. Maybe it's your coworkers and colleagues that you work with. Maybe it's simply that your work supports your family and your kids uh, or your other community activities that you do in your non-work life. Whatever work enables, finding, finding someone else who benefits and then reminding yourself about that. Finding ways of, of having that visible, right? Whatever it is, because everyone's path to meaning is different than everyone else's. So you can't, no one can tell you what you find meaningful, but you can create opportunities, again, create space for people, to, for your teams to find what's meaningful for them and then find ways of, and then once, once they have it, find ways of reminding them or reminding yourself, you know, stories or posters put in different places so you can re- reread them and remember them, right? When you get a, a nice note of appreciation for the work you've done because someone else has really, put that, on, put that somewhere you can re- remind yourself, right, this is why I'm doing this. Not I just have, because I have to. I have a feel I have a benefits. feel good folder. So I love that yeah. strategy. <laughs> that's and where so, all, that's where I go on the bad days when I need to remind myself about, yep. you know, why I do what I do. So yeah, why that's I'm a that's that's a that's a great strategy. So and, and also I think what what I hear you saying is, you know, purpose and meaning comes in large part from impact or connection with other humans it's, yes you know when, when you get all the way down the line regardless of what your job is and so it's not about the job itself um right. but it's about you know the the impact that you're having on, on other others. on other human beings yep. which is beautiful yep. i talk about values meaning and i think that at the core of each of us we all have our our core set of personal values mm. and I think a lot of people know some of their values, but very few people can define them and prioritize them in a way that's useful. And I think that taking a couple hours to really write down all of the things that, all the values that could be yours, and then tapping into your life stories and the big decisions. And, and I've got a whole series of questions in the book that kind of probe these big, what matters to you? And why does it matter? Because if we can start to see how our life and our work align with those values, if we can live in congruence with those values, suddenly life is meaningful. And that's the research shows over and over. If we can live a life that's congruent, then we can really, that's a meaningful place too. There's a lot of cool ways to to both understand those values and then figure out how do I see them in my life more? And then how do I actually change and adapt my life and my work a little bit to live in them more often and, and actually express them more often. I do want to dive deeper into at least some of the seven strategies, um, in particular for you know team leaders, for colleagues. I mean, we are all leaders in our life in some way. So what advice do you have 
what are some of the strategies that leaders and teammates can help increase engagement and happiness within their team? Yeah. So I think, I think the first one we've covered really nicely, which is the meaning idea. Yeah. We need to have meaning. And so whether it's purpose meaning or values meaning, obviously going at it, both of them is important. And I think it's also important to know that when we're going after meaningful things, we're not going to feel good all the time. In fact, there's a stress paradox. Like when we're, we often feel stressed when things are meaningful because they're important to us. And so acknowledging that the path to an engaged, meaningful life is not one that's always going to be the easy way, I think is important. Um, that we can do lots of things to feel good and feel happy, but when we're really working hard to, to do something meaningful, it's okay. We, we call it the, um, um, Ali Crumb talks about, uh, it's a cold, dark night on the side of Everest. <laughs> and her yeah. implication is, look, you're doing some, you're climbing the biggest mountain in the right. world. You're not expecting it's going to be a walk in the park. If it was, everybody would do it and it wouldn't be meaningful. Right. So there's going to be some cold, dark nights where you're like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? But if you remind yourself, oh, right, because I want to climb the biggest mountain or I want to be a great parent or I really want this product to be successful, right? Because it can change lives. Suddenly, it's okay that we're, f- we're, we're, we're suffering, quote unquote, through stress, that we're feeling this stress. It's like, oh, that's because it's important. Yeah. So Reminds me of Glennon Doyle. She says, we can do hard things. <laughs> we can do hard things. We can do hard things. Yep. <laughs> And in fact, a life that's easy and hedonic, you know, all about hedonic pleasures is not one that's meaningful and for a lot of people not worth doing if we can't find those. So, so meaning is a big strategy. Another one that I think is really pertinent now is, is social connection. Hmm. We have all been part of our languishing, right? We, we are wired, right? We're tribal. We're wired to connect. Yeah. And it is so difficult when we can't see our friends and we can't see our people and we've got all this social distance and it's, you know, we all know that we're suffering through this period of, of less. And so one of the things that I really like to talk about is how do we be proactive about a rebuilding? So many of us have lost so many of our wonderful skills because we spent over a year with just a few people and, and some of us have lost even that I'm an extrovert and I, and, all of a sudden, the idea of going to a bar, even you know, if it, let's say it was all vaccinated people, I'm like, oh, what would I say? What would I do? I'm out of practice, right? And I'm an extrovert. But so what I what I what I love to suggest to people, and what I talk about in the book a bit, is three different habits, personal habits that can help us reactivate that desire and that interest and our empathy and our and our ways of learning. And there are dozens of tools in the in the book, like tools and exercises and things. Think of it as an action buffet. You don't have to do even a small percentage of them. Listen and find one that sounds intriguing to you, sounds, that sounds interesting and sounds kind of fun to you. And then try it out. Try it out for a few days. Try it out for a week. And if it doesn't take, that's okay. There's tons more opportunities all driven by research that you can go and try. And if it does work though, how do we make that into a habit that we do without having to think about it? Right? How do we make it into something that we do every day? We wake up and we do our gratitude exercise. We wake up, we get to our first meeting, we first pick up our phone and we, we do a little thing that connects us with somebody. Integrating it, hardwiring it into how we do our day is centrally important. So let's talk about three personal, different personal habits that can help us with our connection, with our desire to connect, et cetera. One is an adaptation of one of the most popular things, which is gratitude for others. Just take three minutes in your morning, 
write down three people that you care about that, that are important in your life and what specifically you're grateful for about them. Mm-hmm. So it can't just be, I'm grateful for my mom, but I'm grateful for like, like I'm grateful for my son who's 16 and he'll still give me a hug all through the pandemic. He's more than willing to give me a hug. And that's so important. So it's not just me and my wife that, that can hug, but I have a, another one. And so that's, I really appreciate about that, that for him. So taking, taking a few minutes and just carving it out, creating that space and write down three people you're grateful for and what specifically you're grateful for at that moment. Right? And this, this can obviously rewire and train. And I know you've, guests have talked about this a lot of times. You're, you're hardwiring your brain to, yeah. to activate and then make it easier. Each time you do a gratitude practice, you make it a little bit easier. You're growing new synapses in that neural pathway. You're growing new neurons in that neural pathway over time. And it makes it easier and easier to find the good stuff and appreciate it. So a gratitude for others brings that and focuses it on other people so that you really can start, oh yeah, I love them too. Then a second one is something, uh, you know, this is, we worked out with, um, was, comes from Sean Aker and, and, and the team that I've been working with for a number of years there. We call it a conscious acts of kindness, but a specific email or text where as soon as you get to your phone or to your laptop, some way that you tie it to something, send a two line email to someone in your network, appreciating them telling them why you're grateful for them, um, encouraging them, some, or just sharing some good news with them, right? Sharing, you're just sending this little packet of love and connection and positivity out to somebody, right? And you, you just do that regularly and you try to do it. And each of these, you know, like we talk about habits, we talk about 21 days only because it, it helps us get started and we say, oh, I can do anything for three weeks. (laughs) But, it, but 21 days isn't enough. It's like, here, this is enough to sort of lock it into a habit and then figure out how to integrate it into your life long-term. So gratitude for others, conscious acts of kindness, email or text. And then my, th- my third favorite, and this is one I do a lot, is something I call a connection meditation. And Jen, have you ever done loving kindness meditation? I have, yes. Uh-huh. And so I've, I've adapted it because loving kindness meditation sounds like a hard thing to, to convince executives that they should do at work. <laughs> Um, so I call it a connection meditation, but it's based on the same 5,000 years of history of loving kindness meditation. And we adapt it somewhat where, and just, just for your listeners that aren't familiar with it, the whole idea is you spend a few minutes in a quiet space and just kind of breathing, just, just like you would for a mindfulness meditation. And then you bring to mind someone who is really close to you, very easy to love. You know, may, sometimes if people are feeling conflicted with their partner or with their kids, they, they think of a, a niece or a nephew or a grandmother, someone that's really a benefactor of some sort that's easy for you to love and open to. So you just bring their mind, their face to mind, and you send positive wishes to them. May you be happy. May you be healthy. And you kind of really open to the love that you feel for them, the connection that you feel with them. And, and you run through these through a series of these sentences and then you change and you bring it to maybe someone else you love, but maybe there's a little bit of conflict, right? Maybe it's the partner or whatever. And you try to, and you bring them the same, may you be happy, may you be healthy. And you do it slow enough so you can really envision them and, and connect with them. And then you bring it to, then you bring attention to someone that you don't know that well. Maybe it's a coworker you haven't spent a lot of time with or a neighbor. And, and you just take them through the same um, the same statements and then try to open to connection with them. And what's amazing. And you know, this one, this one sounds really woo woo in California to a lot of people. And I, and I want to say that it's, it's backed by really great research coming out of, um, Stanford 
coming out of University of North Carolina that shows that when we do this exercise, not only do we get primed with lots of positive emotion, but we also, it really increases our empathy, our ability to take other people's view and, and understand what they're feeling. And it helps us actually want to make those connections. So this is one of my favorite ones. And it's, it's great if someone already has a mindfulness practice to, to mix in this connection meditation yeah. from time to time. And, and if people want, they can find a, there's a, a recorded, a pre-recorded one on my, on my website, uh, puthappinesstowork.com slash resources. And I think especially now when so many of us are feeling disconnected from others and along those lines, you know, there's a lot of talk about for those that have been working remotely, recognizing that many have had to go into work um, Mm -hmm. and are frontline and essential workers, but there's now talk about offices opening or offices are opening and people Mm -hmm. are going back to the workplace and and many are experiencing re-entry anxiety for the reason, <laughs> you know, that, yep. that you said that, you know, we just haven't been around others, but also, you know, many other reasons. There's a whole host of things, right? Yep. Interestingly, I think the anxiety and fear that we were probably feeling at this time last year for many of us, we've adapted to, right? And now this is a whole new set of unknowns and uncertainty. And so do you have any advice or insights or kind of strategies to share with us on, on, you know, reentry anxiety, if you will? Yeah, I think um, there's a couple of ways I'm thinking of going with this. I think one of them is how do we be proactive about recreating those some of those connections once we feel connected with people again it helps us work through some of the stresses and fears um and so there's a a fun it's called a pecha kucha presentation okay and so this is it comes from the social connection chapter but i want to talk about it because i think it really can help with exactly what you're talking about which is have everyone on a team and whether you're going to do this in person or because you're starting to bring, I think it's a great way to sort of rewarm up our, our interpersonal spaces. If we, if we are pushing our team back into the, into an office, you just ask everybody to pull together 10 photos of their life outside of work. And it can be their life outside of work, both during and pre pandemic so that you've got a, a full variety and put those 10 pictures together. And the idea is you ask one person each you know, weekly meeting or something to spend three minutes at the beginning of the meeting. Because here's the key, you've got 10 photos, but you only have 15 to 20 seconds to share each one. So you're not going to be telling telling full stories. You're just going to be like, Hey, this is, this is my wife and kids. And this is why they're important to me. And this is, you know, I, I, like I'm a beekeeper. So I put my, these are my bees and I like, I, they're really curious about them and you, uh, uh, and learning from them and they give me honey sometimes. And, and, you know, here's, here's me in my hospital. I, I had cancer this last year and I had surgery and, and I'm better now. And it's awesome. That's just the level of detail that you're going to get. Right. And, and obviously, don't, people don't have to share. They can share what they want to share. But the idea is just spending a few minutes at the beginning of a meeting helps people understand who you are, where you're coming from, and creates all kinds of seeds for questions and interactions later, right? Because, oh, you, I didn't know you had cancer. Like, what's, what, tell me about that. Or I've always been curious about bees, and I want to learn more. Like, tell me, you know, let's, let's have lunch or something and talk about it. So it's a, it's, Bringing some of the positive tools, I think, to to some of this fear as we as we step back into work and we're whatever the fears are, um, and then I have a whole strategy about s- putting stress to work, and this is about realizing that 
the stress that we feel, um, first of all, those negative emotions when we're feeling fear and things like, let's make sure we open to them. Make sure we let them in, just like we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And then when the stress is there, recognizing that stress actually, we evolve stress to help us. But there's a number of ways that we can change how we respond to stress from something called the threat response, which is where we, you know, the, the, the response that we, we hear so much about, about the negative, you know, the negative health effects, the negative productivity and, right. and, and efficiency, like that's real, that happens. And there's another response called the challenge response, which happens naturally when we feel like, hey, this is going to be hard, but I think we have the resources to actually go after it. And it changes our physiological response and stress, opens our, our peripheral vasculature and our, and our brain vasculature, allowing more blood to actually get to the parts of the brain that matter. And they're really important for us to, to help address whatever that stress is. Um, and so just knowing that, oh, wait, just reminding ourselves, hey, my heart's beating faster. I'm, my blood's moving. This is actually getting my body ready to perform. Um, right. I, I think stress, I mean, obviously long-term chronic stress is bad, <laughs> um, but I think stress gets a bad rap because we need it, right? We need it to grow. We need it to, you know, to push. I mean, I, I liken it to when you go to the gym and you want to grow your biceps, you know, you, you, you stress it out, right? You lift yep. heavy weights and then your bicep grows. It's the same thing for, you know, the rest of us with stress. Right. Um, but but the, it actually circles, and it circles back beautifully to yeah. the meaning stuff we yeah. were talking about. A- absolutely. Right? Because if we can tap into why we're doing it, why we're accepting this stress, yeah. why this stress is part of our life. Oh, because it's meaningful. Because we, we want to get back to our people. We want to, whatever the, the meaning is, this is stressful now, but it'll get better. It's, but it's, it's important. Stress with a purpose. <laughs> stress with a purpose, right? Like and most, purpose. So much of it is. Yeah. And we just need to figure out what that purpose is so we can remind ourselves this is why we're this is why we're going through this now. Because yeah. it'll allow us to actually achieve X, Y, or Z and help these people and do these things. And even just inventorying all the resources you have. What are my strengths? What are yeah. the what are, what about the team around me? What what can they bring? As soon as you start realizing you've got more assets and more resources than you thought, that can switch how you process your stress from the threat response into the challenge response. Love it. So, so you've given a ton of tips, but I'm going to ask you what, what, how do you personally cultivate? Like what's your go-to <laughs> um, number one thing that, that you, that never fails you, or maybe it fails you, but what's your number one go-to <laughs> thing? <laughs> yeah. I, cause I, I, I'd be cautious about that language because there's just, there's no way that all things work all the time. Right. And, I, and, I realized it is the words were coming out of my mouth, right? <laughs> let me catch those back and pull it back. But the, um, but yeah, no, the, there's two things that are part of my regular practice that are essential. And one is fitness and just get, it only needs to be 20 minutes. It only needs to be moderate exercise. I like to do the hardcore, you know, spin classes. I'm a, I teach, teach a spin. Well, I did <laughs> teach a spin class and I plan on teaching again. Like, but it doesn't have to be like that. Find ways for you that you can just get your body moving. And then the second one is my meditation practice. And I'll do a mindfulness meditation and then I'll integrate every third or fourth time I'll do, I'll use the connection meditation instead. Um, because that it's a nice, actually it's a nice integration because mindfulness meditation can give you that sort of calm, you know, satisfied kind of, you know, kind of a feel, but it's not, it's not a higher energy positive emotion. So I really love doing the connection meditation because it helps me feel the people in it and it, it drives. In fact, you know, Barbara Fredrickson did a whole head to head between, 
the loving kindness meditation and yeah. the mindfulness. And she said, people stick with connection meditation a lot longer because it feels so good. Yeah. And so, so it's uh, so it's a nice way. If, if meditation is something that people want to do, think about starting with the connection meditation. Still, tons of the benefits of of things, but also these positive emotional ones that are important. Oh. I'm going to try it and I'm going to recommend it too, because I often get people asking me like, I've tried meditation and I can't stick with it. What do you recommend? So now I have a recommendation for them. <laughs> I just usually keep telling them to keep trying. <laughs> right. And, and, right? Trying, I mean, that's, and, and that's, that's, that's what you hear, right? Is like, you're not doing it wrong. If you think you're doing it wrong, right. you're doing it right. <laughs> you're judging yourself, right? Yeah, Which is part exactly. of what we're trying to let go of. And, and so like, Put your bottom in the in the on the cushion or on the chair, yeah. And you get what you get, yeah. And it's okay if you're not staying. It's it's yep. right. Yep. We all we both teach this, but it's it's not about it's not about staying with your focus. Like it's about noticing when you wander off. That's the that's the whole thing. And you can't wander off if you've got it perfect. Yep, exactly. And <laughs> I've never met anybody that um, even the most avid meditator that doesn't wander off. So yep. <laughs> Yep. So one final question for you. This this has been awesome. So so rich, um, and so many tips and things that you shared with our listeners. What and I ask this to every guest, so you are probably familiar with it. What is your personal definition of well being? I think that my it is central to having the, the positive emotions. I, I really I probably default but to the whole PERMA idea from, from Seligman, which is those positive relationships, having something that we engage in and we care about, positive emotions, and then meaning. Those are my four anchors. If we can, whenever something feels off, all right, which of these am I not, not really paying attention to? Which of these am I letting fall off? I really need to, is it relationships? Is it the meaning? Whichever it is, those are for me it's a balance. And of course, it's not about feeling those all the time. Like we've said, it's not, none of this is like, Oh, I'm feeling so fulfilled and I'm just sitting in this for days at a time. No, they're just little fleeting experiences of these positive emotions, the sense of meaning, these feeling connected with my people. Those, those are the, the, the real anchors. Um, those, are, those are good ones. Flourishing. I like them. I approve. <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> Green lighted from Jen. I'll take it. Well, Eric, um, like I said, it was a joy to to have you on the show. I'm feeling lots of positive emotions from it. So thank you for, hey. for lifting my day. <laughs> <laughs> it was perfect. And thank you for, for the opportunity to share these ideas. And, and you know, I, I've learned so much from other guests. I'm glad that I could share some things. I'm so grateful Eric could be with us today to talk about happiness at work. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher, or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.